You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It got cold. It got so cold, the legends say, that rabbits hid underground for months at a time. The elk took to living in caves, and birds fell from the sky as their wings froze in mid-flight. It got so cold that the air crystallized in front of the Wide Valley wolves as they hunted. Each breath seared their lungs, and even their thick undercoats did not protect them. Wolves are made for winter, but this was a winter beyond all wolves. The sun stayed always on the far side of the earth, and the moon, which before had been a vibrant beacon, chilled to black dimness. The Raven King said it was the winter to end the world, that it would last three full years, and that it was sent to punish those who ignored the will of the ancients. All Lydda knew was that she was hungry, and that her pack could not hunt. Lydda wandered away from her family, not bothering to sniff for whatever voles or hares she might find along the way. Tashim, her leader wolf, had told the pack that the hunt was off, that the elk that ran the wide valley were too scarce and the pack too weak to catch the few that remained. Now they merely waited for the colder chill of death to replace the chill in the air. Lydda could not wait. She had walked away from her packmates, and especially away from the pups, with their bones clearly visible through their fur and their hungry eyes. It was the duty of every wolf in the pack, even a young wolf like Lydda, to provide for the pups. And if Lydda could not do so, she was not worthy to be called wolf. Dorothy Hurst has been a senior editor for Jossie Bass, where she published books for nonprofit, public, and social change leaders. Her first novel is Promise of the Wolves. Thank you for joining me, Dorothy. I'm very glad to be here. Dorothy, maybe you could tell me when you first took an interest in reading as a, as a child. Oh, I don't remember when I wasn't reading. Um, I, I grew up in a house completely surrounded by books. Um, the family room um, of our house had books, you know, like the kids' books. So that's where we had, you know, Ping, which was one of my first books. And the Cat in the Hat, and my favorite Cat in the Hat was the one where he had the ring in the tub. And the ring in the tub followed him around the house, and I could really relate to that. And then my parents had floor-to-ceiling books in their, uh, in their den. And one of my very early memories was climbing up them to get to the, the good books on the top shelf. Wow. Now, did you start reading fantasy as a child? Was that one of the first kind of literature you read? I did. I was very into horror stories when I was young. And so my mother was, kept trying to find me new ones, and I quickly made my way through the kids' section. And so she gave me Poe, and I read my way through Poe. And then she gave me Ray Bradbury's The Velt, which is this really great story about this, this family that has this room, and the kids go in there, and they make believe this African Velt, and they make believe it so well that it becomes a real place. And that's what really hooked me on science fiction. It was my first science fiction and fantasy story. Boy, that's one of the most memorable stories I have ever read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when did you start writing? Did you write as a, as a kid? I wrote as a child. Uh, I, my sister and I both used to write and perform the things that we wrote. And then when I got a little bit older, when I got to junior high school, I started acting. And so writing was on the back burner for quite a while. And acting was my focus until oh, probably my mid-20s. And then I began to try to write again. Now, you're in your mid-20s. You graduated from college 
at that point? Yes. And, uh, what was your degree in, just out of curiosity? I was an English major. Okay, okay. Uh, but so I was, I was an English major, but I defected to the drama department my junior year and, and spent much of my time there. Now, how did you get a start in the publishing business? Really through the back door, which uh, I think a lot of people did with publishing. I went to New York to be an actor and got into publishing as my day job and worked in customer service for a while and then made my way to marketing. And when I moved back to the Bay Area from New York, I found my way into editing and really found, felt I'd found my calling at that point. Could you talk about being a, a, a book editor? What were your duties and, and what was it like to be an editor? It was the best job in the world. I, I was an acquisitions editor. So what that means is that I was the one who would go out and find the projects that we would do. And the books that I published were for nonprofit organizations and public organizations and social change leaders. So it was basically my job was talking to all these people doing wonderful things in the world and helping them develop their ideas into books. And I would work with them on the development of the books, so the big picture, structuring, and, and helping them shape their titles. Now, as you were doing this, uh, when did you decide to start writing a, a animal fantasy novel? Well, that really just came to me. I'd been trying to write for about 10 years. And I wrote a lot of first pages. And for a long time, I couldn't get, back the get past the first page. Then I did a few short stories, but I wasn't really thinking about writing a book, and I certainly wasn't thinking of writing an animal story. And then one day, I was sitting around, recovering from a pulled muscle in my neck, and I started thinking about dogs. And I'm a dog lover. My entire life, I've been a dog lover. And I've always been amazed at our relationship with them. Why do we love them so much? Why do people run into burning buildings to save a dog? Why do dogs treat our children like their own puppies? And uh, I had read Michael Pollan's The Botany of Desire, which is about plants. And when one of the questions he poses is who really domesticated whom, us or the plants, who was, who was in charge of that? And I thought about that in relation to the dogs, and that's where the, the animal story came from. That's really interesting. Could you talk a little bit about, now, had you read any of the, you know, the class... Animal fantasy fiction is a really interesting subgenre because fantasy yes. fiction is, you know, uh, right now it's the, one of the big genre fiction sellers. And animal fantasy fiction is a in really interesting subset that, though it's classified with fantasy, it's rather different. So could you talk about your experiences reading it? It is. Well, I had read uh, Call of the Wild and White Fang when I was young. I'd, I read the Jungle Book when, or had Jungle Book read to me when I was very, very young, but I wasn't particularly interested in this genre until I started writing uh, because it wasn't what I expected to write. And so at first I read quite a bit of it and um, really enjoyed some of it, and then I couldn't read any while I was really writing my book because I didn't want any, anyone else's voice in there. But what I really love about it and why I think it's such a wonderful subgenre is that you really get to play with defamiliarization. That's a huge part of fantasy anyway, is you put your characters in a different world in a different time, and you get to really mess around with what's going on. And telling something from the point of view of an animal lets you do that even more so. And that's one of the reasons I think it's such a wonderful genre. It, it also, I think, um, in terms of appeal, it has a, a, a bit more mainstream appeal. I mean, you're more likely to have a, a reach into the mainstream with, with a, a kind of animal fantasy than with a, a regular generic Celtic uh, fantasy trilogy, as we used to call them on the internet. I think that's a really good point. I think one of the things it does is it bridges our world and the fantasy world. In the case of you know dogs, we have dogs all over the place. They're in our living rooms, and so it's something that really hooks us into this other world. Or cats. You know, there's the uh, Warriors series that Aaron Hunter does for children, which is about cats. And again, okay, you see your cat every day, and I think that's one of the reasons it's so popular. 
Now, as a, a writer, once you started writing this book, mm-hmm. you were all, you were also simultaneously on the other side of the equation, and didn't that cause some kind of conflict? Didn't you? Did you fear yourself, your your mirror image? <laughs> I didn't. It was actually very helpful uh-huh. because. First of all, I wasn't scared of editors, and I wasn't scared of publishers. <laughs> and I think a lot of writers are. They think that editors and publishers and agents are big, scary people, and they were the people I worked with every day, so that was really helpful. And also, it was really helpful to me to understand that writing is work and that it's not magic. I think a lot of people think that if you're going to be a writer, it just has to come pouring out of you, and the muse speaks to you, and a book appears. And what I knew from working with so many authors is like, no, you sit down every day, and you hammer it out until you until you have something you like. And also, I'd, I was editing nonfiction, and so it didn't really compete too much in my head. Then I did eventually quit my job to finish writing the book, so at a certain point. Now, as a when you started this out, this project out, this is a pretty interesting project because there's a lot of really fascinating research that you've incorporated into your book. Um, but did you just sit down on page one and write what we heard as the opening paragraph? and then decide to go backfill in research? Or did you sit down and, and outline yourself out and get yourself going and start or just start doing the research and then wait for the research to, to speak to you? It was a little of all of that. So I, f- I started off just writing. And what was inter- well, there were two really interesting things about it for me. First of all, I had so many misconceptions about wolves when I started writing. The very early stuff I wrote was all about like wolves killing people and wolves being very vicious. And when I did my research and found out that wolves are not like that at all, and wolves are very social and that they only kill if they have to and that they don't kill people, I had to go back and change that. But what was really magical for me was that when I went back and looked at what I was writing, I had written the first page 10 years before when I was still only able to write one page of something. And this character, this, this talking canine, was already there in my head and had been hanging out for 10 years waiting for me to be ready for her. That's that's really interesting. Now, could you talk about balancing, you know, you're, when you're writing about this, you're choosing a subject that's really fraught with personal emotions for your readers and for dog and for wolf lovers. So when you go into this territory, it, 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 there's a lot of emotional uh, trauma you have to deal with. You mean as far as the way people feel about wolves and dogs? Yes, or just... the, the way people, people have powerful feelings for their dogs, some for wolves, some don't like wolves. So could you talk about deciding to write about a subject that's fraught with so many strong emotions? Sure. I, I deciding about it is a strong word because this topic found me and didn't let go. Um, kind of the way a wolf will grab something and not let go. So I was, I was along for the ride for, to a certain extent. But I did have to be careful. Um, first of all, writing about dogs. I mean, bad things happen to wolf puppies in my book. And as a reader, that's something really hard for me. I don't, I don't like books where bad things happen to wolf puppies. So I had to tread a little carefully with that. And then I was just, when I found out how controversial wolves were, I was just delighted because that's so much good stuff. And I had no idea when I started what a touch point wolves were. So I had a lot of fun with that. Well, tell me, how did you undertake this research about wolves? I mean, it's a really, there's a lot to learn where did you start? There is a lot to learn, but there are some wonderful resources. There's the International Wolf Center in Ely, Minnesota, and they have a wonderful website and a lot of great information. And then I read the books by David Nietzsche, who is the one of the big wolf experts out there. And then I got to go to Yellowstone, and I went to Yellowstone as part of a program that the International Wolf Center put on. And so it was part going out and wolf watching and part being lectured to 
about the wolves. So you get to go out there and you, the wolves are usually about a half mile away, but just seeing a wolf run across the snow, you know that's not a dog. And that was just really a transformational experience. Now, could you talk a little bit, uh, uh, did you actually get really close to a wolf? I mean, uh, physically close? Yeah, physically close. I got very close to a wolf dog hybrid. So there's a picture, my author photo is me with what a lot of people refer to as the big white dog. And that is Dante. And Dante is an Arctic wolf dog hybrid. And he's up uh, near Sacramento in a place called Never Cry Wolf Rescue. And so I got to hang out with the hybrids that, that Sam Blake has up there. Well, tell us about these wolf dog hybrids. Who, who, how, how do they come about? I mean, uh, it, it's not obvious to me. How they, how they, yeah. Well, yeah. Who, how do, do wolves and dogs breed? I don't know. Well, it's interesting. You know, we all we all know the definition of species as uh, you know something that can mate and produce fertile offspring, mm-hmm. which wolves and dogs can do together. Mm-hmm. So if a wolf and a dog mate, you get a wolf dog hybrid. The same thing with a coyote and a dog. You get a koi dog, which is a hybrid between a coyote and a dog. So they can all interbreed. And so the wolf-dog hybrids are quite common, and what happens is people will take them in and think maybe they have a dog and sometimes can't handle it, and so they will end up giving them to places like Never Cry Wolf Rescue. But they're pretty amazing. I got to see a puppy. I got to pet a puppy. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty amazing. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about just the society of wolves, what, what you learned and how you took what you learned about how wolves interact in society in reality and folded that into a fantasy plot because you have a, a, a very interesting fantasy plot. It's a, it's, not, it's a plot that, you know, is not unfamiliar to anybody who's read Lord of the Rings or any of the classics of fantasy fiction. The Wolf Society and the way it is arranged was one of the things that really hooked me on the book and encouraged me to continue to write it because it is so much like our society. It's more like our society than a lot of primate societies are. So everyone kind of knows the typical alpha male, alpha female. It's a little bit more complex than that. So sometimes one wolf will be in charge, and then during a certain kind of hunt, another wolf will be. So they have very strong family bonds. Um, Acceptance into the pack is an extremely important motivating factor for any wolf because, uh, you know, for survival, wolves need to be part of the pack. Uh, All of the wolves in the pack take care of the pups. So the alpha male and female will have the pups, and then every, every other wolf in the pack takes care of them. So the adults will go off hunting, and there'll be yearling wolves who stay home and are kind of like pup sitters, or else an old wolf will be a pup sitter. It's and a so, Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so they really do behave so much like we do, which is one of the reasons that dogs fit into our lives so well, is that it's a very similar social structure. And so that was just so much fun because it, it was both a challenge, but it was also one of the things that was really fun about the book was putting, keeping everything true to a wolf, but making it interesting to a human. And that made it a lot of fun to write. Well, well, how intelligent are wolves? I mean, in compared to, say, a chimpanzee or in, in human, where, are, where do they fit in that spectrum? Do we really know? It's Part of it depends on how you measure intelligence. There's a lot of interesting discussion on whether a wolf or a dog is more intelligent. And a dog will do more things that we want them to do because that's how a dog fits into its uh, evolutionary niche. But a wolf does very well to survive on its on its own. So a wolf is very intelligent as far as how it survives in the world of a wolf. And it's about social interactions. It's about how to hunt. Uh, if traditional intelligent tests, I don't think wolves are up there with dolphins or or chimpanzees, but they're they're pretty high up there. Now, one of the the, the aspects of this book that's most interesting and, and based in a lot of 
a very current science is, is this idea of the coevolution of yes. wolves and humans. Yes. Could you explain what is meant by that and how current the science that you, who did you talk to? Did you actually go and talk to the people who are working on this right now? Well, I called them, so I didn't talk to them in person. But yeah, so coevolution in general is two species that evolve together to the mutual benefit of each species. So anytime, you know, you know, the fish that swim around and there's a small fish that cleans the big fish, and so the big fish gets cleaned and the little fish gets the food, that's, that's coevolution. And so wolf-human coevolution and dog-human coevolution is the idea that wolves and later dogs are what made us the dominant species on the planet. And the research can be anywhere from people who say, okay, once the wolf was domesticated and became the dog, it helped us hunt, and that helped us settle down into agriculture. If you go at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who say it was wolves that taught us how to hunt, and before that we were just scavengers, and it was wolves that taught us to have centralized meeting places, and that's where all the good controversy is because people have very different opinions about that. And a lot of this came from genet some genetic research that was done probably about 15 years ago by Robert Wayne uh, down in Los Angeles, and it showed that it, it's based on mitochondrial DNA evidence, which shows that the wolves that became wolves and the wolves that became dogs split off uh, about anywhere from 50 to 150,000 years ago, as opposed to 14,000 years ago when you see the first dog skeletons. So that was really interesting, but also highly controversial. A lot of pop population geneticists don't agree with that. So, so this is all still up in the air and being debated in the scientific community, even it as is. you write. It is, which is one of my favorite things about writing fiction that is based somewhat in science, because anywhere there's a question or a controversy, you can make up what you want. <laughs> that makes this a science fiction novel, I guess, it's in a, a way. Yeah, I, it's interesting. People ask me whether it's fantasy or science fiction, and if I had to pick one, I guess I'd say fantasy, but it is based in science, so I think it does cross over well, into both. Let's talk a little bit about some of the fantasy aspects or, or just the idea of wolf fiction. You mentioned Jack London. I mean, that's one of the first books that I ever really glommed uh -huh. on to. Right. And, and could you talk about the, the, the thread of wolf fiction from Jack London or even before onward and how it ended up, how you carry it forward? Uh, it's been a long time since I've read those books, and I purposely didn't read a lot of other wolf fiction while I was writing. One of the things that I think I do a lot more than some of the earlier fiction does is I anthropomorphize quite a bit more. And so I, I move my wolves a little bit more toward the, the human side. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been such a long time since I've read London or Kipling that it's hard to, for me to place the wolves within that. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the prose, creating the prose voice of wolves. This is mm -hmm. a, you do a really good job at it. And, Thank and, you. And it's, it seems very uh, authentic and it, it reads very nicely. Um, how how did you do this? Did you, did this just flow out of you? Did you have a lot of rewrites? Did you talk to people who understood what the cognitive capabilities of wolves were? I do a lot of rewrites. One of the things that led me to the wolf point of view was really trying to see the world as a wolf would see it. So what's important to a wolf? Finding the kill, the hunt, what things smell like. And so I worked very hard to express the world in the terms that would be important to a wolf and meaningful to a wolf. At the same time, it had to be something that humans could understand. So if I were being 100% true to the world of a wolf, everything would be smells, everything would be uh, scent and sound, and I wouldn't do a lot with vision. But then my readers wouldn't really understand what was going on. So that was one of the things that was most challenging about the book. And then really when I write, I, I'm, I'm in the fur of a wolf. And so I'm, I see everything the way a wolf would see it, and so I speak from that perspective. 
do you know when you're writing the scenes in this book this is the first book in the trilogy it is okay it, you've got a plot of this particular novel and you have a plot arc for the trilogy how much do you know when you start when you're working on this book of the whole trilogy how much do you know of the book and how do you kind of slot those things together as you're writing each individual scene well when i started writing the first book i had the whole thing figured out and then i thought it was one book and then on about page 200 i realized that i had much too much material for one book and then i thought it was two books and then I went to the International Wolf Conference and realized it was three books. So at one point I knew everything that happened and everywhere it went, but that changed as I wrote. So right now I'm, I'm doing a lot of re... I, I know the entire arc of the story, and I'm working out what goes where. As far as the scenes when I write, I, I don't write in a linear fashion. I tend to throw out all these scenes, and I throw out the conflicts and what the characters want, and I write about all of that. And then I start piecing it together and think about what causes what, what makes this character behave in this way. And so I have a general sense of it, but the the actual step-by-step -step of the story evolves as I write. Now, uh, you talked about anthropomorphizing. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. How do you go, you know, circumscribe the limits of what you're going to do? Because you don't want to be so familiar to your readers that they think, oh, you know, that they forget they're in a wolf. And yet you don't want to be, as you said, so foreign that they don't understand what's going on or they're not able to empathize. You won't, how do you, that's a difficult terrain to navigate. It was a lot of trial and error. And also a lot of that came from my, my earlier career as an actor. Uh, I write very much from a character perspective. And I remember an acting teacher once talking to me about what, what do you do if you play a really terrible person? What do you do if you play a murderer? How can you find that and make that true? And what you do is you find the part of yourself that could kill. And then you think, what would I actually do if I were a person in this situation? And so I take that idea and I think, okay, what would I do? How would I think if I were a wolf? And the most important thing to me was finding food, being accepted into my pack, uh, exploring the sense of my world. And if I were in that situation, how would I behave and what would I think and what would I say? And that's how I bridged the human, me, and the wolves. Um, and the other thing, and you just alluded to this uh, obliquely, was that uh, the limits of what you show. You, you want to write a novel that I think that adults can read, are interested in, and also that maybe young adults can read. So you want wolves, you know, the terrible things happen to wolf puppies in this book. It's, it's fairly distressing. <laughs> yes. Especially, I have a dog, so, so <laughs> it, was, it was, parts were fairly difficult for me to read. But, uh, how do you choose those limits and yet remain true to what you know goes beyond those limits? I tend to write beyond the limits and then I pull it back. So I write a lot more than goes in the book. So I take something pretty far out and then I look at it and I say, okay, who's my audience? What does my audience really want to read? And how do you give your audience a meaningful reading experience without devastating them? So it's just, you know, it's interesting if you read young adult books that have sex in them as opposed to adult books that have sex in them. The level of description is a little bit different, and so I went the same way with when you, the bad things are happening to the puppies, how graphic do you get? And I think when you want to cross over with young readers and adult readers, you can't make it too graphic, but you still go to the emotional core. And also, I, I read a lot of young adult fiction. as I was Once I realized that this book was going to be suitable for both adults and young adults, and I noticed that the, the kids are pretty tough, and they really actually like the books where there's some high drama. I was at a reading, well, I guess it was a reading in Denver, 
And this one little girl who was maybe about 11 years old came up to me and we were talking about the book. And she said, yeah, the beginning's really sad. I was, I was really sorry to see that, but I guess you have to have that in a book. And I thought, yes, you do. It's the drama. There are other kind of things. As a fantasy novel, in terms of fantasy, you've got, you know, the classic fantasy trope of the outsider, you know, marked for change. And, and you also have, you know, the classic fantasy trope of, of the names of all the, the, mm-hmm. the creatures. Could you talk about architecting that as a fantasy writer now? in your fantasy writer sure yeah the I didn't set out to create a liminal figure but that just really happened as I was writing it and uh, an outsider is a very attractive character and once that started to develop I I followed it through so again I really follow where the story takes me and so there'll be something that really hooks me a certain event or a certain situation and once I have that situation then I take that and start to try to craft it so I work with both craft and inspiration and so I start with the inspiration and then put the craft on over it. The names were really funny because some of the characters just introduced themselves to me. So uh, Tlitu the Raven, that was his name and he told me so and that was that. Uh, same thing with Aswin, um, complete with the accent over the first letter of his name, that was, that was just who he was. So in that, um, Ruko and Rissa, I also had their names. So in that respect, it was really just the story talking to me. Once I got there, I really wanted my readers to be able to tell the difference between the wolves and the ravens and the great wolves and the humans. And that's when I used the, the technique of uh, making some of the names similar. So having all the wolves have double letters in their names, which is an idea I stole from Anne McCaffrey when she has the dragons whose names end in TH and the dragon riders with the contracted names. And so that's where I went to the, the fantasy structure and, and used that. Now, uh, did you uh, have first readers for this? And what kind of reading background did you ha- want for your first readers? My first readers were my writing buddies, and there are three, three women that I write with who are, my, uh, who are my saviors, and we write together, and they see all my early work, and I see all their early work, and so they were very helpful, and none of them knew much about wolves, so that was great, and they're very um, supportive but very careful readers, and one of the things I really had to learn as a writer was description, and so every, every first reader who read my book said, I can't see the world, you have to create the world, and that was very helpful to me. So I really look for readers who can take a look at an early draft and understand it's an early draft, but can be very honest and clear about what needs to be changed. Now, when you're plotting a book like this, there's lots of, uh, I guess, um, traps and limits. And and for one thing, wolves as lives, you know, they have their plot limited. I mean, there's not you cannot have a wolf go out and drive a car, build a house (laughs) (laughs) or or even plant a crop. Uh, So... Could you talk about, you know, keeping the plot zippy and and interesting, which you certainly do, while, you know, respectful of the limits of what wolves can do? That was one of the things that I thought would be an obstacle that turned into an advantage in writing the book, because it forced me to be creative, and it forced me really into the mind of a wolf, and really thinking about what, you know, I know it's important to me, and I know how I do things in the world, but if you have that limited range of things that are important to you and the limited range of abilities... You have to find ways around that. And so I let something that would have been restrictive really end up guiding the story because the other challenge being a fiction writer is too much material. At least that's my, my challenge as a fiction writer. And so having those limits actually helps you shape the story and helps you shape the perspective and the plot. Now, the other thing that I found really interesting that you have a, a novel that reads pretty much like a mainstream novel. I mean, even mm-hmm. it, it, 
it's not too outre in any particular manner. There's there's the fantasy touches. So could you talk about creating a plot for a novel that reads like a mainstream but incorporates actual hard science and fantasy tropes, which are generally mutually exclusive? Yeah, I guess they are. Uh, I didn't set out to do that. But as I did the research, the research informed the plot. So I had this idea of writing about, so it started off from science. It started off with, you know, how did the wolf become the dog? And then the wolf point of view is where the fantasy elements start coming in. And then I started doing the research, which brought that in. So it took me a very long time to figure out what went where with the mythology of the wolves, with the fantasy world, with the science, and then just with the, the straight plot and storytelling. And again, that was one of the things in the end that I think really helped me shape the story because I had all these different things to balance. And I, I do flowcharts. I do flowcharts on giant pieces of paper that I have on my wall, and I'll have a one section of the flowchart that's the scientific stuff, and I'll have one section of the flowchart that's just the story. I'll have one, set of, one side of the flowchart that's the, the fantasy and the mythology, and then I see what connects where. And that's how I put all those together. Wow, that's really interesting. Now, uh, as you, you uh, thought you had, we're going to do this in one book. Yes. Then you thought you were going to do it in two. Now you're pretty sure it's three. Uh, how sure are you at that it's three? And, and could you talk about just uh, the, as, as a fantasy writer, one of, the, one of the things that I know many fantasy fans are, are not thrilled with when somebody says, I've got a trilogy, and it turns into a 12-book series that never ends. And, and that, that's a problem for, for readers and for writers. It is, and I, I, as far as whether it's definitely a trilogy, I'd, I'd have to say no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it'll be a 12-book series. I mean, there's definitely a limit to this. I'm just not entirely sure what that limit is. I, I know where I want it to end. What I find as a writer is sometimes it takes me longer to get there than I, than I think. So, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I've got to ask, and this is a silly question, but it, it just came to me. Did you try reading any of this to your dogs? You know, I don't have my own dog. Oh, you I, don't? How, oh I know. God. I know. But I borrow other people's okay. quite a bit. So um, I do borrow it. No, I didn't read it to them, but they were definitely my research assistants. I did have this one scene where uh, the, the girl, the human girl, and Kala, the main wolf, are fighting, are play fighting over a pouch that the girl has. And so they're pulling it back and forth. And as I was writing it, I wanted the girl to let go of it and the wolf to fall backwards. But then I started doing my research, which entailed playing tug of war with my sister's dog. And so we were pulling it back and forth, and I let go, and she fell forward. So that was the way that I really used dogs, is to actually do some, do some research. Uh, when you finished this book, you yourself had to go out and experience what you'd subjected so many writers to. I did. <laughs> Tell us about that. Did, was it easy for you to get an agent? You're already in the business. You already knew some agents. So I did. I'd actually I'd met my agent uh, before I finished the book, I'd actually met her through my job, uh, so that was that was actually an easier part for me. But it's really funny being on this side. There's definitely some karmic retribution, like when people want the, you know the the story faster, or when people ask me questions I can't answer about what I'm doing with the future of the book. It it makes me laugh for all the times I did that to authors. But the people I'm working with are just so wonderful, and it's it's just been so much fun. But yeah, I, I get a lot of good laughs. Um, now that you're the, the book is done and out, you've got a, a new job, and I understand this is a, a fairly tough job, is to, to promote your novel. And this is a first novel, and the, it's been published in hardcover, which is somewhat unusual, which means I think, I believe, that they have a lot of confidence in it. 
could you talk about promoting your novel, what you're doing, and, and how how that goes impacts what you're writing? Because, I mean, presumably you're hearing feedback from readers. I am, which is wonderful. And one of the things that's so much fun is, I, is that I'm hearing a lot of feedback from young readers. I think they're the ones who like to talk to you the most. And so that's really helpful to me because now I know that I want to continue to write it for the crossover audience, which I wasn't sure. And so I definitely take that into account as I'm writing it. And the promotion, so I'm, I've just, this is the, the last stop on my book tour here at uh, the Capitola Book Cafe. And I've been to uh, Seattle and Portland, Minneapolis, Toronto, and, uh, and Denver. And so I've been going around doing that. And Simon & Schuster's doing a lot of advertising for the book as well, doing some blogging. But yeah, having contact with readers is one thing that is much more exciting than I expected it to be, to actually be able to, at a reading or through email, have a connection with people who are reading your book. And you start to get a sense of what works and what doesn't, which is very helpful in writing the, the follow-up book. Now, uh, one thing that you must actually, I think, benefit from is, I mean, there are a lot of people who like talks out there. There are. So uh, do you get a lot of feedback just based on the, the wolf-dog you know, connection? I do, and I get people come up and show me their dogs at my readings, pictures of their dogs. So that's wonderful. And uh, I'm actually thinking of starting a dog gallery on my website, which would be terrific. And it's one of the things that appealed to me about the book and that I think appeals to people about the book is that you got a wolf in your living room. And so it's a lot of fun to see that on the page as well. And they're just great. Dogs are just the best things in the world. So. Oh, I, I certainly agree. Uh, one thing that struck me about this novel, it's a, in a way it's the fictional equivalent in some ways uh, of the kind of consciousness-raising books that you yourself used to publish because, Yes, I mean, it is. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that aspect of it. Were you aware of that when you started it? I, mean, I wasn't. Started? So much of this book was a surprise to me, but that is one of the things that really hooked me. I, I started because I, w I had this question, how did the wolf become the dog, and, and let's try it from the point of view of the wolf. Then I found out about the coevolution, which drew me in a little bit further, and then I realized how wolves are an indicator species, both literally and figuratively, in the environmental movement, in that if a wolf, if the wolves are doing well in an ecosystem, the ecosystem tends to be doing well, but also that wolves are symbolic of the success of the environmental movement on one side and the the anger at the environmental movement on the other side. When you hear people talk about wolves, the people who are pro-wolf talk very much about how the wolves are our way back into the wild and our way to save the environment. And the people who are anti-wolf talk about how the wolves threaten the family and the wolves threaten the American way of life. And once I found that out, I was really fascinated. That led me to the environmental aspect of the book, which is that we all, we all know by now that we have to do something about the environment. That's pretty clear. But I think people sometimes feel like it's too hard, it's too late, and it's too difficult. And I think that's because we are so disconnected from nature. One of the things that dogs do is to connect us back to the natural world. And that's what really closed the circle for me, is that we have this creature with us that can lead us back to the wild and that can keep us from feeling apart from nature, which is one of the reasons that we destroy it so easily. We're going to close with Dorothy Hurst reading from The Promise of Wolves. Girl was using her small, clever hands to scoop out bits of what smelled like the bark of a willow tree, her face intent. I hadn't noticed it before, but her nose was almost flat against her face, her mouth completely pressed in. Her eyes were large in comparison, and her hair fell flat down her back. She did not hear me come in. I stayed close to the opening so I could leave if I wanted to, but not so close that I could be seen by anyone on the outside. Gathering my courage, I gave a very soft bark. 
girl turned, startled, and dropped the folded deerskin she held in her hands. Bits of willow bark fell to the ground. I noticed that the bark was very dry, as if it were the middle of summer, even though the rains had come. Girl gasped and stumbled toward the rear of the den. She was frightened. I was a little hurt, though I knew that many hunters killed humans. Bears did, and long fangs, and a wolf pack could easily do so if we were allowed to. But still, Girl seemed more frightened than she needed to be. I didn't want her to fear me. I heard a slapping of wings, and Tlitu pushed his way through a gap in the antelope skins and strutted over to stand beside me, cocking his head in curiosity. He walked to Girl's feet and began pecking through the fallen bark. He spit it out. It makes my tongue numb, he said in disgust. It is not good to eat. He glared at Girl reproachfully. Shoo, she said, prodding at him with her foot, her eyes still on me. Tlitu walked a few paces away and flew up onto one of the shelves, poking his thick beak into one folded skin after another. Stop that, I said. You're not helping. I am hungry, he retorted, and kept poking through the skins. There is every plant in the forest in here. Try to keep her distracted. I will find us some seeds. Girl picked up a cluster of wheat held together by a reed and brushed it at Tlitu. Get out of here, bird, she said, stamping her foot. You're not allowed to eat that. Glaring at me and at the girl, Tlitu flew to the opening of the structure and stared beadily at us, making a gurgling noise deep in his throat. Girl made a strange waffling sound. She reached up to a high shelf and took the top off a stone gourd and took out some millet seeds. She scattered them on the floor for Tlitu, who quirked happily and snapped them up. Girl looked again at me, more relaxed than she'd been before. The mark on my chest was warm, but not uncomfortably so. Tlitu ran his beak through the white marking on his left wing. It was cool in the mud rock structure, as good as any den. I could see why the humans built them, why it was worth staying in one place if they had such solid dens as this. It did raise problems, though. When the horses left the plain and the Elkrin finished their mating, we would move where the prey moved. I wondered what the humans would do. I stayed as still as I could. Girl lowered herself to her haunches, respectfully, as any wolf would do. She held out her hand to me. We stayed like that for a moment, about two wolf lengths from each other. When I felt she was no longer afraid, I crept forward, no more than the width of two paws. The girl did the same, staying low on her haunches. Bit by bit we came together, until finally her soft hand reached up to stroke my shoulder. I realized I'd been holding my breath and exhaled, ruffling her hair with my breath. I placed my nose against her hand, and she smiled, and gave what sounded like a soft bark, like her earlier waffling sound, only louder. Laughter, I realized, pleased. I've been speaking with Dorothy Hurst. Her first novel is Promise of the Wolves. Thank you for joining me, Dorothy. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.